And in a single day and night of misfortune, the island of Atlantis sank beneath the waves. So goes an excerpt from Plato's dialogue Timaeus and Critias, an ancient philosophical text that contains the first known reference to the fabled continent that, in the centuries since, has come to captivate humanity's collective imagination. Since antiquity, the debate surrounding the existence of Atlantis has occupied the greatest of minds, from Aristotle, Plato's own student, who thought the island an allegorical fabrication of his teacher's creation, to 19th century American populist politician Ignatius Donnelly, who wrote a pseudo-archaeological text on the subject, in which he linked the Garden of Eden with the supposed technologically advanced civilization. But who, if any, are right? Was Atlantis a real place? And if it in fact existed at some point, why has all trace of it disappeared from the historical and geological records? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the first installment in a special month-long series on the mysterious and spooky, right here on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Having grown up during the famed Disney renaissance of the 1990s, I saw all the now classic films that Walt Disney Pictures put out. The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King. I saw each and every one, sometimes multiple times, and owned them on VHS. Yes, VHS, until they were practically worn from excessive use. Indeed, it truly was a golden age for the studio, and for audiences the world over. But as we've seen time and again on this podcast, no golden age lasts forever. And by the early to mid-2000s, Walt Disney Pictures entered an era now known as the post-Renaissance period. From roughly 2000 through 2009, the studio entered a period of decline in which the films they put out were received poorly or simply didn't manage to capture the magic or reel in the dough that their Renaissance predecessors had. Still, especially within the first couple years of this new era, some fun and exciting new films were released that true Disney fans continue to love and admire. Among these, the most unique, in my opinion anyway, was Atlantis, The Lost Empire, an epic adventure that was heavily influenced by the work of Jules Verne and the steampunk style. It told a decidedly darker story about the mythic lost continent and how a team of ragtag explorers go about searching for it. The film didn't do as well in the box office as the studio hoped, but in the years since its release, it has become something of a cult classic and continues to gain new fans through word of mouth, the internet, and other channels. But I digress. My reason for bringing this up here is that, as with most people in my age group, it was this oft-overlooked Disney classic that reintroduced an entirely new generation to the mythos surrounding Atlantis, and indeed, the film's creative team pulled from all the known literary and historic sources surrounding it. In the Disney version of the story, Atlantis is an ancient, advanced civilization that existed before all others. That's because its primary power source, a series of crystals, gave it an advantage over any of its neighbors. But for reasons that are never fully explained, a cataclysm of sorts causes its demise, plunging all but its central district beneath the sea. There, hidden underground in what can best be described as a take on the hollow earth theory, it remains isolated from the rest of the world for millennia, until a team of scientists, explorers, and treasure hunters embark on a quest to seek it out to bring news of its existence back to the surface world. It's an age-old story by now, one that's been tackled by everyone from the 19th century French science fiction writer Jules Verne to a self-professed Russian clairvoyant and psychic named Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, who even founded a new age religion surrounding it. But as I posited in the introduction of this episode, who or what interpretation, if any, is exactly right? Lively discussion surrounding Atlantis goes back to antiquity itself, likely sparked by those selfsame dialogues Timaeus and Critias. After all, they are the first, and at this point only known primary sources for the mythic island that have survived to the present. In them, Plato quotes heavily from the ancient Greek traveler Solon, the latter of whom claimed to have read and translated Egyptian records about Atlantis while in Egypt sometime between 590 BC and 580 BC. 
In Solon's own words, through Plato anyway, the island was said to be located at a distant point in the Atlantic Ocean, beyond what the Greeks called the Pillars of Heracles, what we now know to be the Strait of Gibraltar. In the first half of the dialogue, the Timaeus part, Plato describes the island as, quote, larger than Libya and Asia together, and that it was ruled by a confederation of kings which held sway over all the island. But their doom was spelled, according to the philosopher, when they insolently advanced to attack the whole of Europe and Asia to boot. Perhaps Aristotle's hunch that the island was an allegory of his teacher's own creation was correct after all, as we'll soon see. The second half, the Critias part, elaborates a bit more on Atlantis's creation as well as its physical, that is, geographical features. After the ancient Greek creation myth, in which the Olympian gods were dividing the earth amongst themselves, the island of Atlantis was purportedly allotted to Poseidon, the god of the sea, much to his delight. Because of this, a temple was erected dedicated to him in the exact center of the island, which was described as being a series of concentric rings of land and water, linked by bridges, channels, and canals, the latter two through which large ships could travel. Through Clito, a sea nymph, Poseidon had a son, Atlas, the man who's responsible for holding up the world in Greek mythology, who was chosen to be the first Atlantean king. In addition, the ocean surrounding the island, the Atlantic, was named in honor of him. For many centuries, Atlantis thrived, growing rich through trade with the various peoples and cultures of ancient Europe and beyond. But sometime some 9,000 years before Plato's own time, according to the Critias dialogue, a war had broken out, quote, between those outside the pillars of Heracles and those who dwelt within them, unquote. Greed had overtaken the Atlanteans, who proceeded to conquer the whole of North Africa, as well as parts of southern Europe, namely Italy, and subjugated each of the peoples they'd encountered. So it was that they set their sights on Greece, though they wouldn't get very far. An uprising led by the Athenian city-state, brought people from throughout the Greek world and beyond together to challenge and ultimately drive the Atlanteans back to their homeland. They succeeded, the only power in the entire Mediterranean to do so, and the Atlanteans, crushed by defeat, were forced to retreat. But no sooner had the Atlantean fleets returned to Atlantis did a series of catastrophes, earthquakes and floods, ravage the island. Thus, as quoted in the opening of this episode, quote, in a single day and night of misfortune, the island sank beneath the waves. It's the ultimate tragic tale, as only the ancient Greeks could tell it. Fate, hubris, tragedy, it all blends seamlessly to spin a web of what they called hamartia, or tragic flaw. But is there any truth to it? Surely the Greeks were quite learned in all matters historical and geographical. One need only look to the works of writers like Herodotus or Strabo to know just how well documented the Mediterranean world was by the Greeks. And yet, despite these two platonic dialogues, there's absolutely no other record of Atlantis that survives to the present. Even the travel writings of Solon, whom Plato claims to have referenced, have inexplicably disappeared from the literary and historical record, if indeed they ever existed at all. So what, then, do we make of the tale? In the years since antiquity, many scholars have posited a number of inspirations for Atlantis, based upon several locations throughout the Mediterranean. Most notably is the island of Santorini, a beautiful Greek island that, in the archaic period of Greek history, fell prey to a massive volcanic eruption that formed the giant caldera that now constitutes its signature geography. This geological event has since been corroborated by the discovery of Akrotiri, known as the Greek Pompeii. It was an ancient city of Minoan origin that was buried in the ensuing pyroclastic flow and preserved for millennia until its discovery in the early 20th century. Had the ancient Greeks known of this natural disaster? Perhaps some part of it had spilled into their mythology and folklore through oral tradition. It's hard to say for certain, but the calamity that befell Atlantis bears striking similarities to the fate of Minoan Santorini. 
As we now know, the influence and fascination with Atlantis wasn't confined solely to antiquity. In the ensuing centuries, it would arise, time and again, through various works of philosophical and pseudoscientific literature. In the famed age of exploration that began in the 15th century, various European powers, vying for claims to the spoils of the newly discovered North and South American continents, revived the legend, thinking them to be the remnants of the long-lost civilization. With the discovery of ancient ruins in the jungles of Central and South America, the European imagination was fired by another possible link to Atlantis, making the supposed island's international influence much larger than it had ever been. With the Age of Enlightenment that followed, Atlantis became a stand-in for the concept of utopia. First famously posited in an early 16th century work simply titled Utopia by the English writer Sir Thomas More, it describes an idealized Edenic paradise in the New World. My reason for bringing this up here is that More was heavily inspired by Plato's Timaeus and Critias in the creation of his own work. Hubris, Discovery, Utopia Up to the Renaissance and Enlightenment, Atlantis represented these concepts and more within the European collective consciousness. But by the 19th century, with the golden age of archaeology well underway, the mythic island once again became the subject of a new frontier, that of pseudo-history. In 1882, a curious volume appeared in bookstores throughout the United States, penned by an American congressman from Minnesota named Ignatius Donnelly. It was titled Atlantis, the Antediluvian World, and once again brought the subject back to the forefront of the popular consciousness, not just in America, but beyond. In it, he argued that all ancient civilizations, regardless of their place in the world, had been influenced or were offshoots of the Atlantean people, whom he saw as a mighty race of technologically advanced people who shared their knowledge with peoples throughout the globe. He also posited that the Garden of Eden, as described in the Old Testament, had in fact been located on Atlantis, and was the primary reason why the latter had never been found. In addition, he linked the cataclysm that befell the lost continent to the biblical flood, hence the antediluvian of the book's title. In the years since its publication, Donnelly has become known as the father of the 19th century Atlantis revival, and is considered the sole reason why the myth endures to this day. But while Donnelly's text was an informative, eye-opening account meant for everyone, the tale of Atlantis was soon hijacked by the more nefarious movements of the late 19th and early 20th centuries, especially in regards to ideas of racial purity and superiority. Among the first to champion such ideas, albeit inadvertently, was Helena Petrovna Blavatsky, known simply as Madame Blavatsky, a Russian occultist and self-professed clairvoyant who founded a New Age religion known as the Theosophists. Having read Donnelly's book, she soon wrote one of her own, The Secret Doctrine, which she later claimed had been originally penned in Atlantis itself, with her merely translating. Unlike Plato, who depicts the Atlanteans as troublemaking enemies, Blavatsky saw them as cultural heroes who were the fourth race in what she called racial evolution, with the current races of humanity being the fifth, or Aryan race, to succeed them. In her account, the Atlanteans ultimately destroyed themselves through a combination of inner turmoil, namely civil warfare, as well as, quote, dangerous use of psychic and supernatural powers in which they revealed the secrets of the cosmos to the world, thus resulting in their demise. Some of the concepts she addressed would go on to be utilized and perverted by various eugenics movements, and, later on, by none other than the Nazi government itself. It's a well-known fact that Adolf Hitler and several high-ranking Nazi officials had a fascination with the occult. In their search to legitimize their claims of German racial superiority, they turned, not just to Blavatsky's own work, but to that of an 18th-century French astronomer named Jean-Sylvain Bailly, the latter of whom had written an account about an Atlantis populated by a race of, quote, giant godlike Nordic supermen. Using these texts and concepts as springboards, Hitler and the Nazi party portrayed themselves and their supporters as descendants of these racially pure Atlanteans, and therefore the masters of all those they deemed inferior.
The idea that both an entire populace as well as government officials could buy into such an idea might seem absurd to us, but such are the dangers of so-called hive thinking. It's an Atlantis that neither Bailly nor Blavatsky would scarcely recognize, as they, especially the latter, believe the Atlanteans to be the ancestors of such diverse peoples as the Native Americans, Mongolians, and of course, the ancient Aryan people of India. Luckily, after World War II, this particular Atlantis story was neglected in favor of that which has been portrayed by Ignatius Donnelly, as well as Plato, and popularized in such diverse forms of media as comics, television, and cinema, introducing the story to new and successive generations. Fast forward to the Walt Disney Pictures film that opened this episode, which remains one of the most popular, and certainly one of the most entertaining versions of the age-old tale since its release in 2001, one that ushered in an entirely new era of Atlantis scholarship and speculation, with historians, archaeologists, and even paranormal researchers weighing in on the topic, and both the impact and influence it continues to have on our world. A cautionary tale, a utopian society to which we can and should strive, an idealized racial paradise, and an advanced civilization. These are just some of the things that the lost continent of Atlantis has been ever since its first mention in Plato's dialogue, Timaeus and Critias. In the years since, it has become a cultural phenomenon of sorts, one that still captivates no matter how many times it's retold or reborn. These days, it's largely agreed that Atlantis never actually existed. Yet that hasn't stopped humanity from speculating about the massive impact that such a society would have had on our world. If the myth of the Atlanteans has taught us anything, it's that it can be an indispensable tool upon which mankind sees itself reflected, both its positive and negative aspects. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me on this first episode in a series of spooky history-related topics throughout the month of October. Be sure to return next week for a look at an unusual dance epidemic that plagued various towns and cities along what's now the French-German border in the 16th century, only on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. Have a great weekend, everyone, and I'll see you all next Thursday.